Well, good morning, everyone, and a special uh, welcome if you're visiting with us this morning. It's great to have you with us, and uh, we hope and trust that your time with us this morning will be a blessing and an encouragement. Uh, If you'd open your Bibles, please, to Job chapter 7. Just before we read from God's Word, just a a couple of quick things to say. Number one, um, I wonder what is your favourite instrument um, in corporate worship when we come together each Lord's Day? What is it the thing that you most like to hear? Uh, We're served very well here at Cornerstone. Saxophone this morning, guitar, keyboard, uh, various instruments um, each week. But can I say to you, the most important instrument is you. Uh, And one of the blessings that we have at Cornerstone is that the, the musicians serve us. They don't perform for us. We don't listen to them. They encourage us to sing. And so each week when you come to church, what I would encourage you to listen to most is your brothers and sisters in Christ who are around you. Because as the Apostle Paul says, we speak the word of Christ to one another. We lift each other up and we remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel. And particularly on Sunday morning, I don't know about you, but it seems like the time that Satan, the evil one, most wants to attack and to discourage And when you come together each Lord's Day and as we lift our eyes to heaven and as we look to Jesus, we actually are reminded that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, that you're not alone, that there are brothers and sisters in Christ who walk the journey of faith with you. That's the first thing. The second thing is, if you're visiting with us this morning or maybe you're a regular member here at Cornerstone, uh, we, as you will know, are going through the book of Job. Uh, The book of Job is a long book, and um, interestingly, uh, John Calvin, I think one of the greatest teachers God ever gave the Christian church, preached 159 sermons on the book of Job, sequentially. Uh, Now, we're not going to do anything like that, you'll be glad to know, over the coming months. I think that would inflict its own form of suffering. Um, (laughs) But we are going to take a fraction of that, probably a third of that, maybe 30 talks as we slow down and as we look at God's word. Now, why would I do that? Because it's God's word. Because God, in his wisdom, the Holy Spirit decided to inspire this much revelation for us. And as I've moved around the congregation, what struck me is amongst so many mature believers, how few have actually heard a sermon series on the book of Job. Now, that's not your fault, obviously, but that's a, I think that's a problem with the pulpit because you need to hear the whole counsel of God. So in the coming weeks, we're going to be going a little bit slower than normal. We might cover two chapters. We might cover one chapter. We might cover three. But as we make our way through the book of Job, Can I also encourage you, you'll see study questions that are sent out if you're regularly attending here uh, or a member. Please read the Bible yourself. Um, Be familiar with what's coming so that you'll get more out of God's word each week. Okay, words of exhortation are over. Hear now the word of God from Job chapter 7. We're going to be looking at 6 and 7 today, but I'm going to be reading from verse chapter 7 from verse 1 through to verse 21. And this is God's word. Does not man have hard service on earth? Are not his days like those of a hired man? Like a slave longing for the evening shadows or a hired man 
waiting eagerly for his wages. So I have been allotted months of futility and nights of misery have been assigned to me. When I lie, when I lie down, I think, how long before I get up? The night drags on and I toss till dawn. My body is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and they come to an end without hope. Remember, O God, that my life is but a breath. My eyes will never see happiness again. The eye that now sees me will see me no longer. You will look for me, but I will be no more. As a cloud vanishes and is gone, so he who goes down to the grave does not return. He will never come to his house again. His place will, will know him no more. Therefore, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or the monster of the deep that you put me under guard? When I think my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint, even then you frighten me with visions and terrify me with visions so that I prefer strangling and death rather than this body of mine. I despise my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone. My days have no meaning. What is man that you make so much of him, that you give him so much attention, that you examine him every morning and test him every moment? Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? If I have sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offences and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, but I will be no more. Please keep your Bibles open and let's pray. Almighty God, and Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to come together and worship you. Lord, you are the true and living God. All other gods are but the inventions of the imaginations of human beings. Lord, we have been created in your image and not the other way around. As we sit at your feet now and as we consider your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our ears to hear your voice. Father, be with me as I, as I preach, that I would speak in a way that honours you and brings blessing and encouragement and edification to everyone who listens. Lord, we commit this time into your hands and we ask for your blessing. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to begin with this morning with an object lesson which teaches um, a really important truth. It's not my idea. I wish I'd come up with it myself because I think it's absolutely brilliant. 
I want you to imagine, I was going to do this actually with this, but I think it's better if you can use your imaginations. I want you to imagine that in my hand is a plastic bottle. And that plastic bottle is you. Just a normal plastic bottle like there is all throughout the world. Millions of plastic bottles just like it. All made in God's image. You being you, though, are unique. And if I imagine in my other hand, I had a jug of water and I poured all this water very carefully into the bottle, filling it up. And the water, continuing on with this analogy, represents all the emotions, all the thoughts, all the convictions, all the experiences that you've ever had in your life. The result of your own personal beliefs and responses to them. And now I'm going to do something a bit dramatic with this bottle. And that is, I'm going to give it a a really good shake. And you can imagine why I'm using this as an imaginary one and not actually as a real bottle with water. I wouldn't want anyone to get wet. But without the lid on it, you imagine I'm going to get this bottle filled with water and shake it. Now I'm going to ask you a trick question which sounds really silly at first. But it's a trick question, okay? And the question is this. Why did water come out of the bottle? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, as I did when I first heard this, well, that's obvious. Water came out of the bottle because you shook it. But remember, I said this is a trick question. Because the point of the illustration is that water came out of the bottle because water was in the bottle. If there was nothing in the bottle, nothing would come out. The reason I say this is because this is exactly what happens to each and every one of us at some point in our lives, maybe even each week. We experience difficult situations or people and we say something like, that person makes me so mad. Or something my family has witnessed firsthand whenever I try to assemble furniture, particularly from Amart, who Angie and I have agreed we will never buy again. (laughs) I start very quickly complaining about the quality and uh, about how frustrating the instruction manual is. This piece of furniture makes me so mad. The problem, obviously, is not with the piece of furniture or with other people. It's me. It's you. It's actually with ourselves. It's with us, isn't it? The situation or person doesn't make us angry but it is instead the mechanism in which we're shaken and our anger is revealed. That which we were holding on to really tightly is exposed, whether it may be a sense of control or a desire to have esteem or respect. It's a great way of showing what is really inside us all along. There's an old Polynesian proverb which says, the strength of the canoe is only tested in rough water. The strength of the canoe is only tested in rough water. And it's a saying for life, not just for canoes. Because as we go through difficult times or circumstances, the quality of our characters is tested and revealed. And this is precisely what is happening to Job. Job has gone through a level of suffering 
I don't think none of us, thankfully, will ever have to endure. He's lost all of his wealth. He's lost all of his family. And he's lost basically all of his health with seemingly little to no chance of recovery. At least that is how it appears to Job and his three friends. But as these things occur, the quality of his character, the genuineness of his faith is revealed. As you all know, the book of Job is a really, really big book. And at 42 chapters long, it's not only one of the longest books in the Bible, but it also, and this is, I think, significant, it also devotes the most space to speeches from people who were clearly in the wrong. We saw the first of these last week with the speech of Eliphaz in chapters 4 and 5. But there are another seven of these kinds of speeches to go. They are both brilliant and brutal. They are brilliant in that they are so clever and expressed so articulately that often you scratch your head and you think, maybe they're right. But we know from the end of the book that they clearly are not. And this is precisely what also makes them so dangerous. Because what they, seem, what they say says seems so plausible. Job's response to each one of them is quite literally inspired. Like an opening batsman in cricket, Job knows which accusation to defend, which accusation to let go to the keeper, and which one to smash away to the boundary for four or over the boundary for six. But just as in cricket, you don't play at every ball unless you want to get out, so too Job wisely selects which accusation he's going to respond to. He doesn't hit every ball. He doesn't respond to every jot and tittle of every accusation. Now, what Job says in um, chapters 6 to 7 then contain four separate speeches in response to Eliphaz. The first is to Eliphaz himself in verses 1 to 13 of chapter 6, if you've got your Bibles open. The second is to the three friends in verses 14 to 30, the second half of chapter 6. Then there's a short speech by Job to himself at the start of chapter 7. And then there's a final speech to the Lord in verses 7 to 21. So Eliphaz, the three friends, him Job himself, and then to the Lord. The thing which really stands out about Job's speech in response to Eliphaz, though, is that he doesn't directly refute what he says. What I mean by that is Job never makes it entirely personal in the sense that he doesn't return insult for insult. Instead, Job shares mostly about his own personal experiences, particularly of grief and suffering and pain, which gives us a really great insight into how he's thinking and how he's feeling. For instance, verse 4, Job talks about how he has become a divine target full of arrows from the Almighty. 
He doesn't curse or blaspheme God by saying this. It's just a simple statement of fact. In the midst of his grief and suffering, Job still acknowledges that the Lord is sovereign over all. Or he says in verses 6 and 7 that all food has lost its taste and makes him feel sick. It's exactly how it is when you're feeling unwell, isn't it? You don't want to eat and even the pleasure of eating is no longer there. Food loses its taste. I think it's part of the reason why food in the hospitals gets such a bad rap. Because actually you're sick and you can't taste it anyway. But the central to Job's response to Eliphaz is this. The one thing he continues to hold on to is verse 10. That he has not and still doesn't ever want to be guilty of denying the words of the Holy One. That was the thing which Satan had said Job was going to do, wasn't it? Back in chapters 1 and 2. Take away his wealth. Take away his children. And then finally, take away his own health. Attack the man himself. And Satan says, he will curse you to your face. But as we all know, he doesn't. In fact... If you have a look back at verse 20 of chapter 1, Job doesn't curse God, he does the opposite. He blesses him. The key truth then is, not only is Job's suffering not a result of him sinning, but please note this, but neither has it resulted in him sinning either. Eliphaz is wrong. Yes, the Lord is allowing something absolutely horrific to happen to Job. But Job has never denied the words of the Holy One. He has never done what Satan said he was going to do. He's never cursed God to his face. He's cursed the day of his birth, but he's never cursed God. That's the main point of the first speech. Eliphaz has what scholars or theologians call a transactional view of suffering. That is, suffering is always a result of sin. But as we read in passages like in the New Testament, Luke 13, with the Tower of Siloam falling on people, that's not always the case. The Lord Jesus himself says so. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. And they haven't done anything wrong. The second speech is extended outwards to Eliphaz and his two accomplices. It must have seemed to Job that they were circling around him like a kettle of vultures. Because they were kind of sitting back and observing him with morbid and detached fascination. Much like we're tempted to do, you know, whenever you see a really serious car crash. You know you shouldn't. But the temptation is to look into the car and to see the damage, the carnage that's there. Rather than actually offering any real help or assistance to Job, though, Job's three friends are waiting for him to die. They really are like vultures. You know, vultures will actually start to pick at the flesh of a victim even before it's dead. This is what Job's three friends are doing. They are picking, picking, picking at their friend as he lays there dying. 
someone said during the week at one of the growth groups, which I'll share with you because I think it's just so helpful. What Job's three friends failed to give him is the thing that we need most when we're suffering. And that's, can I say, it's not silence. It's kindness. Kindness is what we need. Not theologizing, not pontificating about all the reasons why, but to bring a bowl of soup. To sit in the ashes and weep. To tell the person how much we love them and how much they continue to be loved. It's kindness. The one thing Job's three friends never offer. But before all of this occurs, before Job dies, ironically, these three friends want to have the last word. Normally that's an honour, isn't it? That's reserved for the person who's dying. I wonder what their last words will be. Not here. Job's three friends are there, like vultures, to pronounce judgment. They're sitting in self-righteous condemnation on their friend. And ironically, this means, here's the greatest irony of all. By doing this, they themselves are guilty of sin. Just take a look at what Job says in verses 14 to 17 of chapter 6. The NIV translation is not very helpful at this point because the verse literally reads or says this. He who withholds uh, withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. That's precisely what Job's three friends are guilty of, isn't it? They're saying that he's suffering because he has sinned, but in their self-righteousness and pride, they're failing to see that they're the ones who are actually guilty of sinning. Job goes on to describe how they should have acted like refreshing streams in the desert, like an oasis of kindness. They should have showed him an oasis of compassion in the midst of his pain and suffering. But instead, their presence has offered no practical help, no emotional assistance or support. What's more, Job says to them in verses 22 and 23, Have I ever said, give something on my behalf, pay a ransom for me from your wealth, deliver me from the hand of the enemy, ransom me from the clutches of the ruthless? That is... It's not like Job is indebted to them or anything. He's not like one of those friends who consistently gets themselves into trouble through poor decision-making and then repeatedly has to be bailed out by his mates or his mum and dad. Job has never asked them for a thing. But the most pertinent response Job makes to his three friends is found in verse 24. Because rather than have them talk about him in generalities as to how he might have sinned, Job challenges them, let's get specific. Teach me, Job says, and I'll be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. You see, it's very easy for Job's friends 
to pontificate and theologize about his suffering in the, theore- in the theoretical or the, the abstract. But it's another thing entirely to point out to him his actual error. Job says to his friends in the last verse at the very end of the chapter, Is there any wickedness on my lips? Can my mouth not discern malice? Job might have been, might have lost the ability to taste and enjoy food, but he still has the ability to taste or to, or to discern between good and evil, between right and wrong. He's not so completely without that faculty. Especially when he or others might speak with malice. Now, Job's response to Eliphaz could have ended here. It could have ended at chapter 6, but it doesn't. Interestingly enough, Job has ably answered Eliphaz's accusation that his suffering must be a result of some form of sin. Job says, clearly it's not. I've never done it. You've, You've been sitting here with me for a week. You've never heard it. It's not true. Because if I was a sinner, you can bet your bottom dollar the way that it is expressed when you're suffering is you curse God. A lack of faith in God is revealed by cursing him. Job says, that's not true of me. And you guys know it. But significantly, Job goes on in chapter 7 to make two more speeches. The first is to himself in verses 1 to 6, and the second is to God himself in verses 7 to 21. We might think that Job's additional words here are superfluous, that they... um, you know, are not needed. But I actually think they give us a precious, precious insight into the man himself. Because suffering, as you know, is never an abstract thing. It's not something you can observe with cool or detached aloofness. No, suffering is always profoundly personal. The bottle of Job's life is being vigorously shaken... And what comes out? Well, we see both a realistic assessment of his pain and suffering as well as a humble acknowledgement that this is precisely what God has planned. Just take a look again at what he says in verses 2 and 3. Like a slave longing for the evening shadows or a hired man waiting eagerly for his wages, so I have been allotted months of futility And nights of misery have been assigned to me. I still vividly remember when my own dad was um, in palliative care where he was dying of cancer. He was uh, quite a deep thinker and he'd really come to grasp the truth of the gospel in the final years of his life. As he lay in bed, barely able to move, he... uh, told me how helpful the words of the famous serenity prayer was. That's a popular Protestant prayer written not, as some people think, by St Francis of Assisi, but by the Lutheran theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. And it goes like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. There's a lot of wisdom in that short prayer. 
Grant me the serenity or the peace to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. There's a time to fight and there's a time to give up. It's a wonderfully concise, beautiful prayer which both avoids the twin extremes of fatalism and activism. On the one hand, to not do anything at all and be completely passive. But on the other hand, not to wear oneself out, fighting and fighting and fighting and going on and on and on and trying to avoid the inevitable. My dad said that that prayer was a great insight when you're really sick because you know you have to know when to keep fighting it and when to let go. When it's your time. When to seek medical intervention and help, but also when to accept that your time had come. And as Job talks to himself, I think we see him modelling that kind of balanced approach. Because he both accepts the lot which he has been allotted and assigned to him, but at the same time, notice that he's not denying or minimising the suffering that he's going through. If he could die, if God would give that to him, he's not going to put it into his own hands or, heaven forbid, put it into the hands of someone else. But if God would give him death, he would receive it. He earnestly longs for God to do something about his situation. And in particular in this situation, to take his life. But at the same time, he acknowledges that everything which happens, everything which happens is from the Lord's hand. All of which brings us to the fourth and final speech, and that is the speech Job makes to God in verses 7 to the end of the chapter. Now, there are a couple of things I think that really stand out as you read this. The first is that while Job is honest in questions he makes to God, he never ceases to be reverent or respectful. That's the first thing. Verses 7 to 9 are a really good example in this regard. Job pours out his heart to God, desperately expressing his, the turmoil of his situation, but his language or his tone never digresses into either insult or cursing. He never goes there. There is always what I would call a holy restraint about Job. And as such, there is something incredibly noble and godly in how Job expresses himself, which is, friends, can I say, worthy of emulating whenever we might find ourselves in a similar kind of difficult situation. But at the same time, Job is not seeing the whole reality of his situation. He is human after all. In particular, what the Lord is doing and especially what the Lord thinks of him. Just take a look at what he says in verses 17 to 21 again. Because these are a really good example of both reverent questioning, but also a sign that Job doesn't really grasp the full picture. He can't because he's never been let in on what happened in the heavenly realms in chapters 1 and 2. And he never will be let in on what happens in chapters 1 and 2. Verse 17. What is man that you make so much of him, 
that you give him so much attention that you examine him every morning and test him every moment. Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? If I have sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? Oh, if only Job knew how much God was watching him. If only Job knew how much God had hedged him in and protected him. If only Job knew, but he doesn't, what God is yet to do at the end of the book. The thing is, is that we, the reader, know the Lord has never stopped watching over Job. God was even the one who singled out to the Satan, the person of Job, after he'd been roaming around the earth looking for someone to devour. Job was more in God's eyes than that Satan was. You know, we read very famously in Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. But do you know what it says next? He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Then the Holy Spirit says, the Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Five times in that psalm. God promises to watch over his people and he never stops doing so. Clearly, the Lord has never stopped watching over Job or you and I, even when things are difficult. But then Job goes on to say to the Lord, why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offences and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in the dust that you will search for me, but I will be no more. There's a simple truth here, isn't there? In, in case you just missed it, there is no reincarnation. There is no, this is no dress rehearsal in that sense. Like, you know, you don't get another shot at this. This is it. Once again, the bottle of Job's life is being shaken and the water of his inner thoughts and even doubts are being revealed. And oh, how we can relate to it. Do you ever find yourself in a situation, friends, where things just continue to go wrong or remain difficult? You pray and pray and pray and while God gives you wisdom and strength, the problem continues to remain unresolved. You ever find yourself in situations like that? Indeed, sometimes it can get even worse. That's not because the Lord hasn't forgiven you or doesn't care about you. He has and he does. You see, the truth is this. Our circumstances are not a sign of whether or not God 
has blessed us and we are receiving his favour and grace. It's not a sign of it. Down through the ages, God's faithful people have often experienced all kinds of trials. And this is precisely because they were at the centre of his saving plans and purposes. Sometimes people think, if I want to escape the trials, maybe I should stop following God. Things would be a whole lot easier. Satan just would leave you alone then. As Joseph in the book of Genesis discovered when his brothers sold him as a slave and even spent two years in prison for a crime he did not commit, the Lord often takes his chosen ones through very difficult circumstances, through through reasons ultimately known only to him. There's a great old hymn by William Cowper called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. It's a shame we don't sing more hymns in church because they have such a depth and a richness to them. (laughs) Amen, sister. Too many songs that are written today stay on the surface and they don't go into the depths of what it means to suffer or to go without. You know, Cowper's life was marked by terrible tragedy. First, his mother died when he was six years old. And the pain and grief of that never left him. He would write later in life poems about how much he still missed his mother, even though she died when he was six. Then his father sent him away to boarding school in England, you can imagine what's going to happen next, where he was severely bullied. Later, after a two-year engagement with his fiancée, her father forbade the marriage and he was left heartbroken. He experienced such deep and repeated episodes of depression that he wrote this, quote, I was struck with such a dejection of spirits as none but they who have felt the same can have the least conception of. Day and night I was upon the rack, lying down in horror, rising up in despair. By the time he reached the age of 31, he had such a catastrophic mental breakdown that three times he tried to take his own life. And as a result, he was committed to a psychiatric um, hospital, which just happened to be run by evangelical Christians. And it was there six months later that he met the Lord Jesus Christ and was born again. Cowper wrote about that experience of becoming a Christian like this. Unless the almighty arm had been under me, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears and my voice choked with transport. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with wonder and love. Now, you might think that's great. You all lived happily ever after. That's not true. Cowper continued to wrestle with serious bouts of depression on and off for the rest of his life. It never completely went away. But he has left behind some of the most beautiful hymns ever written. And in the hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, that I was telling you about, he helpfully and powerfully writes this. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread, 
are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That's a very easy thing to say or to sing. But it's another thing entirely to take those truths to heart and believe them. For when the battle of your life is being shaken, you just want everything to stop. What does the Apostle Paul say in Philippians 4? He has learnt the secret of being content. Now, listen, please, to this carefully. In any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul famously writes, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, read in the context of what Paul is saying, that obviously doesn't mean that if you become a Christian that you will always be well-fed. You will always be in plenty. That's not what Paul is saying. Like William Cowper or so many other believers could testify, it it doesn't mean that you will never experience bouts of depression or even despair. Spurgeon used to say that there are dungeons in the castle of despair. Shortly before he died of dropsy in 1800, Cowper, one of the last things that Cowper was reported to have said, not the last, but one of them is, I feel unutterable despair. This from the man who experienced all the joys of heaven, who wrote these precious hymns and talked about a smiling face behind a frowning providence. Just because you and I are Christians, friends, doesn't mean that we will never experience any pain, any trial, any struggle. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's telling us the secret of being content, even when those things are present, even when we are in want, even when we are hungry. You see? The prosperity gospel teaches that you'll never go hungry. You'll never be in want. That's not the Bible. Even when we are hungry, even when we are in want, like Job or William Cowper, we we need not give ourselves to hopelessness in despair. You see, unlike the teaching of the prosperity gospel, following Jesus doesn't mean you'll receive all of these material blessings in your life right now. Sometimes you will. And they too will be from God's gracious hands. Will you be content when God gives them to you? When God blesses you with wealth? Or when God blesses you with health? Or when God blesses you with children? Are you content? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I sometimes wonder whether the greater challenge, friends, is to take all of the blessings that we have and experience here now and rejoice in them just as much as when we go through trial or pain. But can I say this this false teaching of saying that God never wants you to go through trial, that God never wants you to go through pain, that God never wants you to go through suffering, that God only ever wants to bless you is from the devil. It is the logic of Satan. 
That's the accusation that God, that the devil makes against God, that the only thing which motivates anybody to worship God, anybody to trust God, is the promise of what I call the three Ps. Promotion, provision and protection. That's the only reason, Satan says, people worship you. Take those things away, Satan says, they'll curse you. By the way, have you ever noticed how when Jesus was being tested by the tempter, same person, Satan, in the wilderness, that was precisely the strategy Satan used. The prosperity gospel strategy. Remember, the devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of this world. And he says, I will give you all of these if you will but bow down and worship me. Everything you could have ever wished for will be yours. That's the prosperity gospel. That's the good news of hell. Oh, how ironic. Satan accuses God of being able to buy worshippers. But then it's precisely the same approach he takes to buy worshippers. He truly is a deceiver and the father of lies. Our contentment is not based on our circumstances, friends, but on the person and work of Christ. It's the knowledge that our offences have been pardoned, that our sins have been forgiven. Your circumstances don't tell you that. The gospel tells you that. Coming together in church and hearing your brothers sing and praise God for the cross, that's what tells you the truth that you need to hold on to. Not your circumstances. That on the cross, Jesus took the punishment which your sins deserved. And that putting your trust in Jesus, a great exchange took place. He took your sin and he gave you his righteousness. And sometimes, you know, I think what happens, friends, is he takes away material blessings or maybe he gives them to remind us of the truth of the gospel. That that's infinitely more precious than anything we could experience or hold in our hands. That we have been given his perfect righteousness and he has paid the price for our guilt and our shame. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your standing in, in, with, before God now is one of being justified? Just as if I'd never sinned? Do you know that you're his child? The reason we can be shaken but still content is because we know that Jesus is with us even now. It doesn't matter whether you're well fed this morning or whether you miss breakfast and you're hungry. It doesn't matter if everything at home is going great with all your family members or you're having a fight with your brother and sister. You can be content. Because Jesus is always present and he's always, always giving us his strength. And as we saw last year when we went through 2 Corinthians, it's particularly when we are weak, isn't it, brothers and sisters, that he is strong. And if you're relying on your own strength, can I just say, beware, because it's only a matter of time before God humbles you and weakens you so that you might receive true strength. 
So in closing, can I just say, brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. That will never happen. As he says in John 10 and 27 and 28. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you and praise you for answering our prayer this morning and for speaking to us through your word. We thank you and praise you for the book of Job because it points us to Jesus. His example, Lord, is so relevant, relevant for our own lives. Lord, may it be true of us this week. May it be true of us that whether we experience positive things or negative things, that we can say with the Apostle Paul, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your death on the cross, your resurrection from the dead and your ascension into heaven. We are so humbled, Lord, that while we were sinners, while we were your enemies, you gave us eternal life and you reconciled us to yourself. You justified us and you made us your friends. You made us your children. Lord, may this knowledge be so precious to each and every one of us that we belong to you. And Lord, based on this foundation of your loving acceptance, of your divine initiative, we pray that we would live lives of love ourselves, that we would love as we have been loved and that we would forgive just as we have been forgiven. Lord, bless us, strengthen us with your power, we pray. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.